from Liverpool, England. The significance is that the Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Hello, I'm Jack, and you're listening to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast, an interview show about the Beatles' influence in the past, present, and future across the universe and across generations. Today I'm interviewing Charlie White, who is an Emmy Award-winning director. He's a producer at PBS, a professional musician, a journalist, an entertainment manager, a tech critic who wrote articles that Steve Jobs read and feared every day. Charlie is a human extraordinaire. He's lived an extremely interesting life, and he's an even more interesting Beatles fan. I'm thrilled to have him as our first guest. While working in production, Charlie was influenced by the clever innovations of Sir George Martin, the producer of The Beatles. Let's listen to Charlie explain his influence. But first, here's a little example of how innovative George Martin actually was. On November 24, 1966, the Beatles began to work through a newly written song under the working title, It's Not Too Bad. Eventually, this song evolved into one of the Beatles' most famous and culturally impactful works of art, Strawberry Fields Forever. There are several notable takes of this song, take 1, take 7, and take 26. After listening back to the different takes, John Lennon told producer George Martin that he wanted to combine two of the takes. John liked take 7 because it was light, and take 26 because it was intense. The issue here is that the two takes were recorded in different keys and at different speeds. John simply said, you can fix it, George. Today, a computer can easily change and or tempo of a recording independently of each other. Just like this. But all George Martin had at his disposal was a pair of editing scissors, a couple of tape machines, and a very speed control. So George Martin and Jeff Emmerich went to work. So they wound up increasing the speed of the first take and decreasing the speed of the second take, which magically brings the two takes to the exact same key. When John arrived at the studio later, he listened to this back and played it over and over again. He turned to them and repeated the same three words, brilliant, just brilliant. Now this was an editing breakthrough and one of the first times a technique like this was used in popular music. It was an innovation so far before its time, its possibility is incomprehensible. The tape splicing and pasting method that George Martin utilized advanced music editing to new levels and paved the way for all kinds of media editors in the future. I loved talking with Charlie about the Beatles. I think this whole conversation is a great example of how the Beatles influenced so much more than just music. Charlie's a great conversationalist, and there's a lot of fascinating things to unpack here, so let's get right into the interview. Hey, Charlie, how are you doing today? Never better. How about you, Jack? I'm good. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Charlie, you've been a follower of my Twitter page, Beatles Earth, from the start. Can you tell us how you came across the Twitter page and what made you follow it? Well, I noticed the Beatles logo, and I've been a Beatles fan since I was seven years old. And I'm telling you, man, that was a really long time ago. I actually watched the February 9th, 1964 broadcast of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show when they invaded America. So (laughs) I guess I'm an old, old fan. 
but it still resonates today. And, and I, I salute what you're doing and I enjoy following you on Twitter. And I'd like to know how you got the rights to use that Beatles logo. <laughs> you might want to cut that out. Anything involving the Beatles and getting the rights to it is always complicated. I've had direct experience with that as well. Really? Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Well, I, I worked for many years for public television and I did a lot of promos. I was a promo producer for about 10 of those years. And we have the right uh, at PBS to use any music from anywhere. Um, it's, a, it's a blanket license to use ASCAP and BMI music. Um, and that included the Beatles. And so everyone would always ask me, how did you get the rights to use the Beatles music in any and in any, in everything you want? <laughs> so it's PBS. And so all my colleagues at other networks were really, really jealous and all that sort of thing. But I, I kept it at a minimum. I, you know, there was a time where the Beatles weren't as popular as they were at the beginning. And it seems like there's a resurgence now, but you know, I try to, I try to keep my ear to the ground. Charlie, can you tell me how you got started at PBS and what got you interested in production? Um, well, I was a musician and, and I think at heart, I'm actually a musician. I was a musician for 15 years and I started realizing midway through my college career at University of Miami that maybe being a musician is not the most secure way to make a living. Even though I wanted to be like the Beatles, <laughs> I was a saxophonist and a guitarist and keyboards for a really long time. For 15 years, I played professionally. And so I figured I might want to do something else. So I started working at the radio station at University of Miami. And I started thinking, hey, you know, this broadcasting thing is a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying this. And so I changed majors from a music major playing jazz and Latino music. I changed over to TV. And I designed a, a major for myself as a music TV director, which was getting to be really popular there in the late 70s, early 80s. So... At that point, I started an internship at the local PBS station, Channel 2, WPBT in Miami. And I got a lot of experience with a director who was a great mentor of mine named Lloyd Berkeley. And he taught me a lot about directing, about high quality production, about what to do in television. And I kept working with him until I graduated from University of Miami. And then he hired me in the, in the lowest possible gig as an audio engineer carrying around the audio recorder, you know, for different political events and stuff. We had a national program called Nightly Business Report. So I kept working on that for 10 years until I started directing it in 1985. And then I moved to a bunch of different other stations and I ended up here in Milwaukee at the public TV station here, Channel 10. Uh, I think that's fantastic. Thank you. It was a wonderful career. I can't I can't complain, you know, and, and how does that relate to the Beatles? Well, you know, I learned a lot about quality from the Beatles and about producing from George Martin and about managing from Brian Epstein. And I tried to use that in every aspect of my career. And as far as television is concerned, I took the Beatles example of layering all kinds of sounds with a lot of their later work. And I used to do that on my promos. I would make soundscapes underneath the video that had all kinds of subtle sounds and together as a whole they would 
resonate with me. And then there was an added dimension with television where you can create layers and layers of video. And when I came here to Milwaukee, they asked me to be a promotions producer, which I was not crazy about. I wanted to be a music video director like I was in Miami. But they asked me to do promotions and I said, hey, this is an opportunity for me to try out our new equipment, which was all digital in 1990. It was like a miracle. You know, we had all these D2 video players and it was all tape back then, but it seemed really fantastic compared to the junk equipment I was using before that. And it was capable of layering. So I worked with a really good video editor and we tried to take the equipment to its limits. And that I also learned from George Martin. You know, they just had an eight track audio recorder for Sergeant Pepper, which was extremely limited. Well, we had a similar situation with our video setup, which was quite advanced for its day, but most people didn't think it could do more than like three or four layers without going into noise. But we figured out ways to do 50 layers of video and put all sorts of subtle shines and the moves that we would do and layer and stack things up. And I would always think of that song, Tomorrow Never Knows, you know, the way they had all these, the soundscape with the, with the seagull sound effects and all this crazy stuff playing backwards. We would do backwards audio sometimes, like we'd get a sound of a cymbal and a cymbal sounds like crash. But when you play it backwards, it goes. And we would, <laughs> that's a good sound effect when you have a lot of quick shots and then you zoom in quickly on something and you go. We would do that sort of thing. Like at the, like the way the Beatles did the giant chord in um, Day in the Life, you know, where it starts with the strings and they're all going up higher and higher. And then we kind of needed a sound effect there, didn't they? So it sounds like George Martin was a huge influence on you. Is that right? He was. And I, I just would read everything I could about the Beatles and in particular about George Martin and the way he produced the Beatles. And as I said, as uh, and Brian Epstein, as he managed the Beatles and showed them how to polish up their act. And that was another part of my career I can talk about later. But George Martin had a way of listening carefully to what his clients, the Beatles, wanted and then taking the equipment that was available to them at the time and pouring in all the creativity he could gather and thinking about it for a long time and then making the equipment do things that were far beyond what it was really capable of and what anyone else thought it was capable of. And it gave me ambition. It was really, I, I was profoundly affected by that. And I kept thinking, okay, let's make this, what would the Beatles do? You know, a lot of people say, what would, what would Jesus do? I say, what would the Beatles do? What would George Martin do here? Right. <laughs> that's been a touchstone for me throughout my career. So how did their manager, Brian Epstein, influence your career as well? Well, later in my career, in the mid-teens and uh, starting in 2015, um, I, had a I have a magician friend who really needed a manager and wanted to introduce his act to the United States. And I thought, well, hell, I can do it. Let me be your manager. He said, fine, I'll be your, be my agent too. So what I did was I studied the way Brian Epstein brought the Beatles to the United States. And I was kind of doing the same thing. I, I was bringing Simon Piero, the magician who was famous in Germany, had his own TV show 
and was doing gigs all over the world, but not in the United States. I brought him to the United States and tried to make it so that he would be a big hit. Um, and I really did figure out, thanks to Epstein, I just had to contact the right people. That's what he did when the Beatles came to the United States in 1964. And that's what I did with Simon. And working in television for 30 years, I had met quite a few people. I have a friend who was a PR agent who I worked with in my journalism career who um, was connected with Oprah Winfrey and um, Harpo Productions. Those people knew, the people at Ellen DeGeneres in LA. And so I contacted them through this chain of connections. and said, I got this magician you have to see, and showed them the video. And I scored a, an appearance for Simon on the Ellen DeGeneres show, which was, he, that's what he said. He said, if you're going to be my manager and agent, I want to be on Ellen. And I said, okay, Simon, so be it. But, but I did the same thing for Simon that Epstein did for the Beatles, which was, I wasn't performing. I wouldn't go on all the gigs with him, but it was a good idea for me to do that because I would meet more people to get him more gigs. And Simon was a huge hit all over the United States for two or three years. It was a wonderful experience for everybody. And, and Simon had the same idea that I did. We were on exactly the same page. He said, let's, Let's make this like the Beatles would have done it. <laughs> Man, it's funny you say that because that's what I, that's my touchstone. You know, that's what I think about with, with everything I do. I try to be well prepared, take advantage of the equipment that's at hand, try to take everything beyond where anyone else has done it and do it with the highest possible quality and with a certain attitude that is just cheerful and enthusiastic and upbeat. That to me seems to be the reason why the Beatles succeeded. They all they approached perfection, and it was they. And beyond that, they were the perfect act at the perfect time. Why do you think that? In the early '60s, you know, I know you weren't around then. It was a really long time ago, but but, but things were going really badly. I, even though I was only seven years old, Kennedy had just been assassinated. Everyone wanted to have some kind of upbeat, optimistic entertainment to distract them from this bleak landscape we were experiencing. Kennedy was killed in November of 1963. And so February 9th didn't come a moment too soon for our country. And it so happened that the Beatles were the antidote to this national funk that was going on. And they, start, they, they made all of us snap out of it. It was a, a tremendous experience, I think, for the whole country. So do you think it was watching them perform live on Ed Sullivan that really hooked you in and got your attention? Yes. Well, actually, I had this cousin who was really plugged into the popular stuff of the day. And, and he would bring me the latest records. Even though I was only seven years old, he knew I was really interested in music. For example, he brought me the Chubby Checker record the year before. But he brought me that Beatles album, the one they released in the United States, not Please Please Me, which was in the UK, but the Meet the Beatles album. He brought it over to me about a month before they um, appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. 
And it was the number one album at that point. I don't know if you remember. Well, you don't remember directly, but you know the Beatles were a pretty big deal starting in late 1963 on radio. They were number one in January. And that album was number one. And I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one. So when I heard that, I can remember the moment when my dad put the record on the record player because I was he wouldn't let me touch that stuff. <laughs> but it was a it was a revelation to me. I'd never heard anything like that before. I hadn't heard guitars that sounded like that. I hadn't heard singers who sang so perfectly in tune with each other. And the whole thing to me was obviously, it was like a miracle. So you started out enamored by them. You're a fan of the band. You're a fan of their music. Yeah. At what point in your life did you become aware of this, you know, fifth Beatle aspect? And when did you become interested by George Martin and Brian Epstein and um, make a decision that these guys are going to influence your career? Well, um, the music part, I immediately got a guitar after that. <laughs> so I started playing and I was also um, taking piano lessons. So the music thing, it, it sort of built on itself. But as far as being a producer, I remember there was a, um, a double album that was released, I think, in 1964. Early '65, that was a, a voice album. It was they were talking about the Beatles, and it was kind of like a podcast, as a matter of fact. But it was on a vinyl two album set, and I listened to that over and over again. And they kept talking about George Martin, George Martin, and Brian Epstein, which is the way they, the Beatles would pronounce it, Epstein. Um, and I thought, wait a minute, what what is a, I was just a seven-year-old kid, what is a producer anyway? Is that just like a guy who hangs around and pulls out the money when somebody needs food? I mean, what is that? And my mom helped explain it to me. And I thought, you know, I, I want to do that. I want to, I want to be one of the Beatles and then I want to be a producer. So before that, I wanted to be a gas station attendant. But at that point, at age seven, I decided I wanted to be a musician and then maybe someday an agent and a producer. So the die was cast. And and I learned at, at that point, I said, I want to know everything there is to know about being a musician and about the Beatles and about being a producer and all of that kind of show business stuff, because I thought it'd be a good way to impress the girls. <laughs> and it was. And it was I, I think it was. It, it worked out, you know, it was. So I ended up being a musician. I played gigs. I, I joined the union when I was 16 years old and started playing country club gigs on the saxophone. But before that, I was in a band when I was 13 with a bunch of older kids. And we played all the local high school gigs and parties and stuff. So I, I was really, I started young. I had to grow up fast. Well, my brother was in senior high school when I was in junior high. I was 13. And he had a friend he was playing in those band with who was a bass player and started a band and my brother said you got to meet my brother he's a guitar player so the rest is history <laughs> so we started playing in this little band we called the royal box b-a-c-h-s that was my idea <laughs> you know like the royal box that you're sitting in or the royal box the composer or you know that was kind of goofy <laughs> but we played a lot of gigs and it was really a lot of fun you know i mean was, for me it was like a dream come true getting paid for doing this really but but i ended up playing all kinds of gigs i, I um i 
practiced and practiced hours and hours. Sometimes I would practice my saxophone so long that, I, well, I would lock myself in the music buildings and practice until my lips bled <laughs> all night. <laughs> I would practice at least four hours a day, which I guess in some days, eight hours. And so I, I really wanted to be um, a virtuoso saxophonist. And that's what I ended up. I ended up playing all kinds of gigs in Miami in the, on the Latino circuit, you know, playing salsa and cumbia and stuff like that. I started out with this. The band was really terrible. Los Cumbiamberos, which is Spanish for the guys who play cumbia, which is a kind of Colombian dance music. Um, it started out, the band was pretty terrible, but it had gigs every weekend. And it got better and better. And for seven years, I was in the same band and we played every possible kind of music, every, all sometimes gigs until 4 a.m. And we got a record contract and we recorded five albums. And at the peak of the band in 1983, 84, we got um, an album contract with CBS Records and recorded our fifth album with them. And that was a whole different situation where the CBS producer came in and I got to work with them, see exactly how he did things. And he reminded me of what I had heard about George Martin. He wanted to take the equipment to its limits and take us to our limits. And it was a revelation for me. And at that point, you know, I decided that I want to be a producer. So. You know, I was working at the TV station at the time, and I was a camera operator then for four years. But I said, I want to do a music video. So I did a music video with a band that was real popular in Miami in those days. And it aired on the PBS station there, and it got a lot of good reviews in the newspaper. And all of a sudden, I was a TV director and a producer doing music video. And it was really at the peak of the whole thing. And I was so happy about that because that was my major in college. I designed my own major, music television. So I can't complain. You know, I, could, I sort of slid in there. The timing was right. But, you know, there was not, uh, it didn't last forever. But it was a great start for me. And at the same time, I was... Um, producing and directing different shows. I produced um, a program called Stargazer. I'm not sure if you heard of that. It was on PBS for 25 years. The guy, it was at, at sign off of the stations, member sign off. They used to sign off and stop broadcasting at 12 midnight. He would talk about the stars. And a lot of your listeners might be familiar with Jack Horkheimer. He would say, keep looking up and <laughs> talk about all the different constellations. It was a nightly five minute program that I produced and directed for years and did a lot of graphics, a lot of effects, a lot of layering, thinking about George Martin, layering of sounds and video, creating all kinds of funny things for my guy, Jack Horkheimer, to do on the show. And it, that was a great experience for me as well. I, and I put together a resume tape that made it so I could move to bigger and better situations. I worked at, I've worked at three different TV stations and four different radio stations. So you must be pretty familiar with all of the different kinds of jobs involved with television and uh, production. Is that true? Yeah. 
Yeah, I've I've lived in I counted the other day, I think about 20 different places. <laughs> but I've I've lived in uh, several different cities and I've done a lot of a whole lot of different jobs, you know. I I don't even want to list all of them here, but I've done all of the jobs in television. I had to work my way up from the guy who puts together the set, a set construction and audio assistant to executive producer director, which is where I ended up in the early 2000s, producing and directing and executive producing my own cooking series that was national on PBS. So, Charlie, is it safe to say you know the industry like pretty much inside and out? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know everything about anything, but I, I do know and understand how to direct a TV show, how to, cre- how to create promos, um, how to write a magazine article, uh, you know, how to play the saxophone, flute, clarinet, piano, guitar, bass, and drums. So if anybody needs anything like that, let me know. <laughs> Your story and professional growth, I think, is very similar to that of the Beatles. You know, they observed what George Martin was doing in the studio, and they eventually became interested in doing that production themselves once they became a a little more opinionated, you know, especially during their solo careers. Um, I'm I'm just wondering, did any of their solo careers or albums have the same kind of influence on you as the Beatles as a group did? Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. You know what? I I was really impressed with what Paul McCartney did at the end of the Beatles. He had the, uh, he had the courage to strike out on his own and create that album that was just called McCartney. You know, it was a, just a, his first solo album. He played all of the instruments on that album and produced it himself and with, with some help from George Martin, of course. And I thought it was a masterpiece. It, it just, he, he, for example, the song "Maybe I'm Amazed" is on that, and I think that's a spectacular song and shows that he could just slide over from the Beatles into a solo career and succeed spectacularly. Yeah, yeah, no, ex- exactly. And I think you know that record, McCartney, is very special to me because it was written during a period of Paul's life where he was really depressed and it was just a low period and he couldn't even get out of bed some days. And then Linda motivated him to just get in the studio and start creating. And it's really inspiring to me to know that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even the the biggest names can fall down and have to start again. It it actually reminds me a lot of how Steve Jobs was fired from Apple. Oh yeah. And then he stayed in bed for weeks on end and had no motivation to do anything. He never got up. Until he started a um, a new company called Next Computers, yeah. and he just started with that, and then eventually Apple bought that uh, company, and Steve Jobs was hired back yeah. at Apple. Steve Jobs has this quote that goes, "Sometimes life hits you in the head with a brick. Keep moving forward." Oh, I like that. Yeah. And that that quote actually reminds me of Paul McCartney because he really wanted to keep the Beatles going during the time of their breakup, and there but there were so many reasons that they were just drifting apart. Um, but yeah. speaking of Steve Jobs, I believe you have a very interesting story about a personal experience with him. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll be happy to. Uh, well, it, 
Apple was uh, really making great strides when Steve Jobs came back to Apple after he had been fired. Um, and, and he had a tendency to exaggerate. And I had a column on digital media net um, that I, it was a weekly opinion column. And I would sometimes take shots at Steve Jobs. And at one point, um, well, I said all kinds of <laughs> kind of obnoxious things about him, you know, like when he got that jet, you know, he got this Learjet free. He says, I'm not taking any salary, but somehow they gave him the $70 million jet, you know. And, and I said, Steve Jobs, you're not telling the truth anymore. What are you doing flying around in that jet without benefit of pressurization? I mean, what the hell? <laughs> Well, he didn't care for that. So a couple of weeks later, um, they came out with some new Mac. And my job was to test a lot of different computers used in digital video, video editing, which was quite the thing back in 2002. It was very hard to do, even with standard definition. And I would test out the fastest computers in the world. And so manufacturers would send me, I'd say, who's got the fastest computer? And this was a great challenge because they would say, we got the fastest. We got the fastest. So Apple sent me their fastest. And Intergraph, which was a big time computer maker back then for content creators, sent me their fastest computer. And I said, okay, we're gonna have a shootout here. Okay, computer, stop. <laughs> Sorry, my, I named my Alexa computer. Okay, C-O-M-P-U-T-E-R then. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, um, with the with the computer, I, I, I tested them. Jeez, here it is again. I'm sorry, I'm having some trouble with my Alexa here. I, I put them head to head. I had some special benchmarks that I created myself using After Effects, which is a layering program for video, which is very complicated and takes a lot of computing power. I tested the Apple, I think it was the, I don't remember which Mac it was, but it was their fastest one of the day against this Intergraph machine with these benchmarks to see which one was the fastest because Steve Jobs kept saying, ours computer is 10 times faster than all the others. No, it wasn't. It wasn't anywhere close to as fast as the Intergraph computer. So I wrote a, a review about it and I said, Steve Jobs is lying. That's not the fastest PC in the world. This is the fastest PC. Look at these numbers. You can reproduce these benchmarks yourself. I, I made them available in the article. So then um, that week, Steve Jobs, who his assistant, I, I shouldn't even be saying this online, <laughs> one of his assistants who shall remain unnamed told me that Steve Jobs would, and this is weird too, he would read my column every week. He would ask this assistant to print it out. I think that's embarrassing. I, you know, the guy, he's printing and he wants it to be not just printed, but printed out. I was surprised that he even said anything like that, but, but he wanted that column on his desk right after it was written every time. So he had read this and he said he was incensed. You know, he said, who is this guy? What does he, who does he think he is? Who is this guy? He's a fucking idiot, he said. He called me a fucking idiot. And, you know, I, I take that as a badge of honor. I'm, I'm honored that he would even know who I was, you know. But I did. And his assistant, you know, wasn't altogether terrified of Steve Jobs. I mean, he would offer his opinion to Steve Jobs every once in a while. And he said to him, Steve, we checked these benchmarks and we have that computer here. And 
it's it's true what he what he wrote is true <laughs> and i no word on whether steve jobs then praised me and liked me after that but the quote is the thing i carry with me as a badge of honor for forever <laughs> but I, I i just i just really strived ever since then and i always have to to not be a fucking idiot and <laughs> i don't know maybe i am but Compared to who? Compared to Steve Jobs, yeah, I am a fucking idiot. But is it okay to say that word on your podcast? <laughs> Sorry, you'll have to. Okay, good. Okay. But I was happy about that, you know. And, and I and I I was surprised that he even read my column. But then when I was meeting with some people with Microsoft, they told me that Bill Gates also read my column. So I was I was flattered that that these titans of industry were interested in my every weekly bullshit, you know, which, but I had freedom. I, you know, we had a pretty good outfit there. I had freedom to do whatever I wanted to write, whatever I wanted to on this group of websites called digital media online. Um, and I can't complain, you know, I got my journalistic start there. I was, I worked at digital media online for seven years and then I was able to, I, and I'd written hundreds, thousands of articles, and so by then, um, you know, I was reading Gizmodo, which is a, a gadget site. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about it. And um, it just seemed like a really fun kind of thing. And I, I saw a lot of typos. So I sent an uh, email to the editor at the time, John Biggs, and told him, you guys need a copy editor, man. And he says, OK, well, you want to start tomorrow? <laughs> what? <laughs> OK. So I started out as a copy editor in 2005 with Gizmodo. There's only five, four guys working there then, all guys. It was a whole different site from what it is now, but it was growing fast, you know. It was, and I, copy editor turned into um, a reviewer and uh, general <laughs> ne'er do well at Gizmodo for a couple of, for three years. I did that, and it, it was a, a hell of a lot of fun, and it opened doors elsewhere where I could go into the whole world of blogging, which to me was just tons of fun and a good way to make a living. It's not anymore, but it was then. Yeah, well, you know, um, while Steve Jobs was designing the first Macintosh computer, sure. he actually used to listen to um, bootlegs of demos and early takes of the Beatles recording Strawberry Fields Forever. And he listened to them in order and... Um, he would pay attention to what the Beatles would change with each take. And yes. he would draw his inspiration from listening to the Beatles mm -hmm. hone their songwriting craft. And he took notes on what they would um, perfect as it as the mm -hmm. song progressed. And uh, so my question to you is, what on earth is so special about the Beatles that they have an influence that's far beyond music? And that without them, we, we probably wouldn't even have yeah. Apple computers or even iPhones. That's a really good question, Jack. I, I think I think there are obvious things that make them such big stars and big influences. And then there are subliminal things that make them big stars. The obvious things are they're good looking. They, especially in 1964, they were really good looking. They were cute. The, the, the girls and the women loved them. So there's this love thing that happened with the Beatles, just like with Apple. You know, people liked Microsoft. People loved Apple. It's the same thing as the Beatles. They could inspire love. That's and that seemed to be their theme. You know, that's the name of their show in Las Vegas. That's a lot of their songs. Love, love, 
love. So, so love is the one word that is the obvious reason why the Beatles were so influential. And then there were a lot of components that put together the reasons for that. And one of them, the subliminal thing that I've noticed is that the Beatles, when they sing together, have perfect pitch. And people don't, a lot of people can't hear when, uh, when something is in tune. And today with auto-tune, it almost doesn't matter. <laughs> but the Beatles didn't have auto-tune. And their pitch is not actually perfect, but close enough to be called that. And you could hear them, like when they sang, please, please me, listen to the harmony in there. Listen, you can, in the, in the new Paul McCartney show, um, one, two, three, have you seen the interviews? They, they can show you the, um, just the tracks of vocals. And it's just, it is, uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? It just rings. It's like they're a barbershop quartet or something. That right there, people don't know it, but that's the reason why the Beatles singing is so pleasing. And it, it, it resonates, literally, inside, it just makes your ears almost ring. Like in the song, Because, if you listen to just the vocals, because the world is round, it's just perfect. And they, the, the beginning and the end of every entrance is perfect. If you've done any singing in a group, that's the hard thing to do, is for everyone to start and end at exactly the same time, for everyone to be perfectly on pitch so the whole thing rings like a bell. That right there resonates subliminally with people who aren't musicians. And for people who are musicians and can hear perfect pitch, it's a phenomenon. You just say, okay, this is the real deal. You can, you can notice that. Well, for example, watching Saturday Night Live, there's a different music group every week. Sometimes they have perfect pitch and sometimes they don't. My wife is not a musician, but I ask her, what do you think of them? If they have perfect pitch, she says, oh, they're good. But she doesn't have any idea what that is. If they don't have perfect pitch, she says, something is off. That right there is one of the most powerful things about music performance that musicians know, but it's kind of an open secret because a lot of people who listen to the music don't know. Right. It's it's kind of that uh, human intuition of being able to recognize that something is just good, I think. Yeah. It's about, the word is precision. So if I would put it into two words about why the Beatles became a phenomenon to answer your question, instead of saying a thousand words like I just did, or maybe 10,000, I would just say two words, love and precision. You put those things together, you can dominate the world and sell more records than anybody else. That's probably the most accurate answer to that question that there is. I mean, look at most albums today. Most of, most of them are like 30 songs long, an hour and 45 minutes worth of listening. Uh, mm-hmm. But they only have one good song on it, maybe. With the Beatles, every single song on every single album is fantastic in its own right. Each song yeah. kind of feels like its own planet. And the Beatles are still topping the charts. Yeah. You know, for me, I mean, I'm 24. So it's kind of hard to imagine a world where the Beatles were the world. 
to me they were always my world well how did you how did you get into the beatles did did your parents listen to them or did someone introduce you to them or did you find them on your own uh so that's a really good question um my dad always played them for me as a kid he always had cds with beatles songs on it mm-hmm. uh he used to play like recorded radio shows uh, for breakfast with the beatles um but i didn't really get into them until I was about 13 in the year 2009 or 2010 Mm -hmm. when I first found YouTube and YouTube was like taking off back then so it was accessible to everyone and um, the first video I saw was the help music video where they're all kind of standing or sitting on that plank and the snow's coming. I like that. Then they fall down backwards in the snow. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. And I, I don't know what it was about it but uh, they just kind of, um, I don't know, I was, I was like mesmerized by them. And then the subsequent video I saw was Ticket to Ride. Oh, another and great track. there's this cool yeah. scene in there where... Think I'm gonna be safe. Yeah. <laughs> Think it's today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, th- there's a scene in there where they're overdubbing the music and John purposefully, like is out of sync with the music just because of how ridiculous he thinks the whole thing is. And seeing that kind of just slight rebellion as a 13-year-old, it really resonated with me, and I was like, oh, I like this singer, and I like this band. So so I kind of got the Beatles all all at once. (laughs) You lucky. You got to experience it all in one, all in one, all of a sudden, just like you were smacked. You were gobsmacked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of went from listening to Help to listening to Eleanor Rigby. And yeah, you like, see, as old timer, we old timers had to wait and wait. Yeah, they had only two albums per year. Oh my god! So, what's your favorite Beatles album? Ah, uh, that's a hard one. Um, I don't. I know. Yeah. So I don't really have a favorite Beatles album. Um, what I listen to tends to kind of revolve around what's uh-huh. going on in my life. And also kind of like the seasons. So, for example, in the fall, um, I tend to listen to Ooh. Beatles for Sale or Rubber Soul just to kind of like enhance the autumn experience mm-hmm. going on. And um, But if I'm also going through like a life change, I'm going to be more inclined to listen to like Sgt. Pepper uh, or Abbey good. Road yeah, just because, yeah. you know, the Beatles were going through changes during those times as well. And I feel like there's something... In, with, embedded in the music that they're making that kind of resonates with me a little more how about you what's what's your favorite album oh man see i was hoping you wouldn't ask that <laughs> i know i i just, i really like the the um the technical proficiency of abbey road to me it, it's just it was the first and the, the 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 their last album but it was the the one that took advantage of modern technology of the day. They didn't use that crappy eight track anymore. They were using like a real studio like we used in the 80s, which was leaps and bounds better than what came before. So they could show what that did. But actually my favorite album is Sgt. Pepper just because it wasn't the first concept album, but it was the best concept album ever made in my opinion. And it showed their the the unbounded creativity of the four Beatles and George Martin, what they could do with limited equipment, but probably the most awesome collection of creativity, of musical creativity ever. 
and put that into a studio and give them a huge budget. And everything about that album was perfect. The album cover even was a, a lasting work of art. Um, all the songs were such a variety. I mean, you were talking about how a lot of bands have, it seems like they got one song. It's like their Johnny One note and all their songs sound the same. There's like this quiet little intro and then they go into a three chord thing and there's no bridge or anything. And it's just sort of a vamp. That's not the Beatles. I mean, think about Sgt. Pepper. Think about the contrast of she's leaving home to within you and without you. It's, it's like they're taking us from a, a, a sad drama to, uh, to India and back again. You know, and then there's Maxwell's Silver Hammer. There's crazy songs and there's spectacular. The whole thing is just a, it's a kaleidoscope. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, ex yeah, exactly. The thing with with Sgt. Pepper is that it, it's like a perfect fusion of pop music and classical arrangement, and it's um, contemporary issues fused with like intellectual lyrics, and it's just everything. I mean, you can try to replicate something like that, and you know, the Rolling Stones did in, in the same year. Oh, that, with their, yeah. Uh, their answer to it, a concept uh, album. I can't remember the name of it. I'm the one you're talking about. Their Satanic Majesty's Request, I think it was called. Oh, oh yeah. And, you know, I appreciate mm -hmm. that album, and I, li I like all the songs on it, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Mick Jagger, oh. if you're listening to this, but you never it's know. just no Sgt. Pepper. <laughs> you know, it's just not the same level of... Uh, yes. Um, it's not as clean as Sgt. Pepper. It's it's not as um, thought-provoking. Oh, yeah. It's you know it's it's a good attempt, but I think that who people are as musicians is defined by their failure to become the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's just my opinion. That you know. Mine too. I think you're right. That's a really good point you make there. There were other concept albums too, you know, like the Beach Boys did Pet Sounds. That was, in fact, that was a huge inspiration to Paul when they were planning Sgt. Pepper. And Pet Sounds is a hell of an album, you know. Um, I like it a lot. I don't love it. <laughs> Sgt. Pepper, I love it. And I love its precision too. And here we are again, love and precision. Those are the, there are more ingredients, but those for me are the, the pinnacle. And I don't think it gets any better than Sgt. Pepper. Prove me wrong, listeners. Prove me wrong. What a, what's a better concept album than Sgt. Pepper? Go ahead. I dare you. Right. <laughs> there, there is no better concept album than Sgt. Pepper. And I think that uh, an, one of the huge reasons of why Sgt. Pepper is so phenomenal is because of George Martin's contributions, through, yeah. you know, his scoring. Even She's Leaving Home, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. What do you think of the the Beatles Love album, the soundtrack to their Vegas show? Ah, oh, I I love that album. Um, the first time I heard that was a couple of years ago, and the first thought I had when listening to it was like, uh -huh. how did I never yeah. hear this before? Um, there's this one track that really stood out to me, and that was the mashup of "Drive My Car," "The Word," and "What You're Doing." Oh. Yeah, that's a and, good one. Yeah, yeah, and and that one really impressed me and the whole album did um 
I think it was. I think it's great for Beatles fans. Um, it's an extra bonus, some extra bonus oh, yeah. content. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought I thought it was great. What did, What did you think about that album? I had never heard it um, when I went to. Um, I, I was at some corporate event where they invited journalists, and they treated us to to go see the show in Vegas, Love. And I hadn't heard that mix, but in that room with the speaker systems they had and the Cirque du Soleil performers with their own interpretation of that spectacular mix, it was just a, a singular experience for me. I had an epiphany. I was, the chills were running down my spine. You know that feeling when you, when you hear some music that you've never heard before and it's just the best ever. And you can't imagine how they made these spectacular tunes even better with this really creative mix by Giles Martin, by the way, who the guy fucking nailed it. It was the whole show was it was just a masterpiece. You should go see it. If you're ever in Vegas, everybody who's listening, go see Love. It's still playing at the Mirage. It's been playing for, I don't know, 15, 20 years now. But it's just a. It's a spectacular. I, I keep using the same words. I can't even think of a word. It's it's an enormous spectacle in every possible way. It's worth it. It's worth every penny. It's it's wonderful. You know something cool about it too is the hall. This this room where they have it. It's it's in the round, great big theater. You know, and the way they present the audio is really interesting because not only do they have a world class sound system in there playing the soundtrack but in each seat which each seat is really comfortable and you're sort of leaning back a little bit and on either side of your head there are speakers so they do some weird effects i can't even i don't even know how they did it or what but it just feels like the music is swirling all around like you have headphones on and you're hearing the music in the space as well it's an effect i haven't ever experienced before or since but that even that is another thing where the, it was designed by the Beatles. They just said, here's what we want it to be like. We want control over what it sounds like in the hall, what the, the building is like, what are the Cirque du Soleil people going to be doing, which was also spectacular. I think the guy um, who started Cirque du Soleil, Gilles, what is his name now? I can't remember his name, but he was also inspired by the Beatles. Oh, no way. Yeah. Sort of like the way Steve Jobs was. Everyone who is a fan of perfection and love is it can be inspired by the Beatles I think yeah well you know you I think that's a good point I think that everyone who kind of has love and precision on their everyday minds and kind of lives their life with those two things in mind um, they're going to naturally be drawn to the Beatles because those two themes are interwoven in all of their songs and all of their music and the Beatles have a lot of layers to their own style as well. You know, like Paul and uh, John would make fun of Paul for silly love songs. And Paul did a story, did a song about that. But the Beatles were a whole lot more than just love me do. You know, they were, they, they dug deep into existentialism with nowhere man and with tomorrow never knows. And this is not dying. Just talking about the most profound issues and philosophies in the world back to back with you know she loves you yeah 
I mean, that's not about existentialism, let's face it. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. But that introduced me to, to the philosophies like that, to Eastern philosophies, which I don't uh, ascribe to, but I, I was exposed to those as a boy, you know, as a nowhere man. You know, and then my mom explained to me, well, this is about existentialism. Let me tell you what that is. And since when does it, I don't know, I guess I was about nine years old. Since when does a nine-year-old boy learn about existentialism? Some people never learn it. Well, exactly, and that yeah. probably would have never happened if not for the Beatles, because there's no, no one else doing that. No one else even knew what existentialism was, or Eastern religions, or philosophies, or anything like that. Look at where they went. They went from silly love songs to, like you said, the universe. Yeah, across the universe. They even had a song, yeah, across the universe. They went all the way across and created new ones, as you say. Yeah, no, you're right, and I, I think that we're still feeling the effects of the Beatles' impact today. We are. You know, we're, we're, we are listening to music with experimental yeah. techniques like auto-tune and computer-generalized mm -hmm. um, drums. But, you know, you look at that in a microscopic lens, you're like, okay, that's has nothing, nothing to do with the Beatles. But then you trace it back and you it see... It wouldn't have been the same if it weren't for the Beatles. Right. And I'll tell you something else. I think um, the Beatles have had such a profound impact. Let's think about the future. I think the Beatles will ha hold a similar place in music history as Mozart, where I believe people 100, 200 years from now will be sitting down in chamber music halls and listening to the Beatles music. Now, you, you call me crazy, but I think this is true classic art that we were lucky enough to experience while these people were still alive but the, the spirit i studied mozart a lot when i was a music student and i think the beatles carry on the spirit of mozart which was playful uh just expansion expanding music taking everything to the next level doing things no one else could do and with a signature glee that is just not present in all the other classical musicians. For me, whenever there's a Mozart composition that comes on, it's immediately obvious who wrote that because it just has this je ne sais quoi. It has, it has precision. And I'd even say there's some love in there, you know, because people loved Mozart and people still do. And it's the same thing. It's the same reason. Because it, it's just exuberant is the word. And I think that exuberance will cross the centuries. There are a lot of things like that that the Beatles have done that really veer into classical music. Like Eleanor Rigby. When, when Paul listened to a Vivaldi string quartet and, and went into George Martin and said, hey, can we do something like this? And George Martin, of course, says, of course we can. And the, the result was this classical piece with a string quartet with Paul McCartney singing with his existential lyrics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing about that is like the Beatles were kind of this figurative melting pot of all of these different things yes. from different corners of the world. You have Eastern philosophy, Western classical music, um, politics. Politics. Yeah. And the um, tax man, yeah, exactly. One for you, 19 for me. 
says the government. Yeah, and they there were this crossroads and this kind of they were a wormhole into the future that they created. You know. Good point. You're the man to be doing this podcast. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But you know, I, I understand that um, the the Beatles' impact is something so far beyond what I can even try to articulate. Sure. Um, and that's kind of the purpose of this show is just I can't articulate any of that, but I would I would love to illustrate it through people's testimony. And I think that your story is a perfect start to this show. So I just want to thank you one more time for, for coming on. Thank you for your time. Uh, it was great talking with you. And You're welcome. This is my favorite topic. I'm glad you invited me. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope that we can have you back sometime in the future. I'd love it. Thank you, Jack. Looking forward to it. Much appreciated. Well, that was our first episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get it. Be sure to follow our Twitter page at Beatles Earth and check us out on our website, BeatlesEarth.com. Be sure to tune in every week to hear a new guest describe how the Beatles have influenced their life. See you next time.